A damning sightsee report, a softwood sideswipe, and a bevy of other topics to talk about today with Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Suns' Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw. Later in the show, more damn talk with scientist Blair King. For Kamloops Computer Center, you're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Kamloops, a winter wonderland this morning, of course, unless you're driving anywhere. Also cold, wind chill minus 17. So pleasure to be joined on the phone by Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw to warm us up. Gentlemen, welcome. Good morning. Uh, so let's start off with the big story of the week, which I think is the BCUC report on the Site C dam. Uh, we now have sort of the basic building blocks, the basic information uh, that the provincial government is going to use to make its decision. Keith, I know last week you were saying you, you're thinking it's going to go one way, you're thinking it's going to go another. Now that you've had time to look at this uh, BCUC report, you've had time to digest it, uh, any sort of clarification on your end how Horgan might play this thing? Well, I think BCUC loaded up the negatives um, much more than the positives of going ahead with, with Site C. So on that basis, I still think I'm leaning towards them pulling the plug on this thing. Uh, you know, but, but the report also makes it clear that uh, pulling the plug does not make it any easier uh, going forward in terms of establishing a reliable energy supply of renewable resources. It, it suggests it may be cheaper to go with other options, but it's far from clear that that's that's a done deal. Uh, that uh, it's, it's, it's far from established that wind or solar or geothermal is going to be the answer as an alternative energy source. It, it may be cheaper. It says it could be cheaper, but it's far from clear that it would be cheaper to go that route. So I still think it's a, it's a devilishly difficult decision facing the NDP. There are a number of things on the table, uh, you know, and the NDP is split on this. I mean, you've got new, prominent New Democrats, Mo Sahota, former longtime uh, cabinet minister for the NDP, on, going on radio uh, this week saying uh, he thinks the thing should go ahead, and he re- represents a, a point of view that is in that cabinet room, and uh, which contrasts with the point of view that's also in the cabinet room, that this thing has to be killed full stop. So, I still think they're probably going to pull the plug, but I'm, I'm far from confident in that assessment. I, I think it's just a, a real difficult decision, and uh, it's, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see which way they go. Now, on that note, uh, John Horgan was asked uh, by Les Lane if uh, the report, uh, its negativity basically paves the way for him to say uh, no thank you and wind it up, but here's what he had to say. Uh, no, because there are consequences to every action. We have to take the broader view here. This is a multi-billion dollar project that's going to have an impact for many, many years on ratepayers, and we have to make sure that uh, the decision we make doesn't have a significant adverse impact on people who pay the bills around here, the taxpayers, the people of B.C., and, of course, he says the decision is going to be based on cost. Uh, Vaughn, when you look at this thing, does, does the cost parameter uh, give you any insight to how this will play out? I think the smartest comment made this week was by the chair of the BCUC panel who produced this 300-page report, and he said, David Morton, I'm glad I don't have to make this decision. Look, this is, uh, there are lots of people out there, Shane, who says it's an easy call, you know, kill it, fine, move on. But... The report, and I think the chair of the panel got it right, this is a very, very tough call, and the way you proceed depends on which set of assumptions you believe. The assumptions about the about Site C, uh, completing Site C, are more negative than they ever were, so you know going down that road there are some significant risks. But I think the Commission did a very good job as well, Shane, of emphasizing the risks of uh, killing it 
and starting from scratch with a whole bunch of other unproven, uncosted options mm. to generate electricity for the future. So when the Democrats say this is a tough call, I think it really is a tough call. Rob, I'm curious to hear your assessment of this thing. What's your read? Well, you know, it took away the artful third option that a lot of new Democrats yeah. would like to see, which is pause it and then pick it back up later when you can sell it to the public. That it's going to cost more to do that than it would to cancel it. So that was taken off the table. I, you know, I was interesting to read the alternative energy sections, and I, and I did a story today because one of the underpinnings of this idea that you could do alternative energy for the same cost or less than Site C is is wind, geothermal industrial curtailment of electricity and time of use pricing for residential customers which mm. basically means we activate those smart meters that are sitting in everybody's home and we start charging you potentially more at peak times of the day when you run your oven during dinner time or your laundry machine than the weekend and that's going to infuriate people you remember the liberals they did not want to do that at all they they went out of their way to say we'll never we'll never do that because it's unfair and places like ontario have had to deal with this the NDP don't want to do it either. Michelle Mungal said, "That's not." I'm cautious about raising people's rates and it looking unfair like the current two-tier pricing. So you have to factor that in. If part of the basket of alternative pricing to Site C is not on the table, um, then it gets, a, it gets even more difficult to compare apples to oranges to bananas on what you can do with Site C versus all the other sources. Yeah, okay, no, maybe true. we'll go ahead. <laughs> uh, Keith, on the cost front, uh, one of the things that BCC report was not kind on was to BC Hydro, uh, basically saying that some of their estimates were wacky, uh, that they were off board, this thing is, is not going to be on time, could quite likely go well over budget. Uh, what was your read on that? Oh, I'm not surprised by that at all. I mean, I, I think any mega project is hard to come in on, on budget and on time. I mean, the track record has been pretty clear there. I think on all sorts of our, our projects in BC. Even, you know, you go back to the Vancouver Trade and Convention Center. I mean, that thing was um, uh, over over budget and over time. So, uh, big or small, uh, these things do have a track record of not meeting expectations. So, when you've got a, a, a project the size of this thing, which is more than eight billion dollars, no one should be surprised that nobody's going to meet that number. It's going to be higher now. You know, is it a big deal to go from 8.3 billion to 10 billion or even 11 billion? Um, if you're spending billions of dollars, does it matter if you spend another billion dollars or so? I don't think that's as critical uh, a deal uh, or uh, aspect as other problematic uh, uh, parts of this uh, this giant puzzle. The one thing that I do think, and BCUC didn't spend a lot of time on this. You know, they didn't have a lot of time. They only had 12 weeks to deal with this thing. Yeah, there are some geological concerns that I wonder may uh, seal the deal here, and that, is, that are these, that includes things like these tension cracks that have not been resolved yet, and if, uh, you know, dollars aside, if geology doesn't allow you to build this thing, it's dead in the water, and I think Hydro still has to answer for that, that they've got to, they've got to produce some uh, evidence, I think, that they're dealing with this, uh, these, these geological concerns, because quite apart from, you know, you can spend all the money you want, you can't build something, a dam on a geological fault, it'll fail. So uh, that, that, to me, is the single biggest uh, hurdle for Site C going ahead. But Hydro may be able to resolve that, to resolve geological concerns uh, in the past. And the other thing with, I think you have to keep in mind, I think there's a bit of payback from B, by the BCUC here, 
they and Hydro have tangled before. Uh, Hydro has given them the back of the hand, not being not submitting their their stuff to BCUC in the past, and I think. Uh, I won't call it revenge, but I think there was a bit of payback here from VCUC to Hydro that uh, sends a signal that they haven't been ha- happy with Hydro for some time on a number of issues, and mm-hmm. this was a, a, a chance, I think, to get their point across. Yeah. Uh, tension cracks, uh, the one big deal, and the other one, Vaughn, as you pointed out, is the movement of that highway uh, to try and, I guess, uh, get it out of the path of the, the two homes or the two properties that are in sort of harm's way there. That also a big issue. Yeah, so the... The highway was going to go ahead. They were moving the highway so that when they filled the reservoir, the the, the right of way, the highway would be flooded. Well, then they hit problems with local residents, First Nations. So the New Democrats told them to put that on hold, which they've done. They haven't called the tenders on the highway, haven't called the tenders on the big transmission lines yet, haven't concluded the tenders uh, for the generating station and spillways. So there's still some big contracts to come, and there's question marks over each of those. The highway one. Hydra says there's a 60% chance of problems with the highway relocation. Hmm. Now, that doesn't give you a hell of a lot of <laughs> right? Hydro is still involved in a battle with the main civil works company that has the contract to do all these excavations and drill the tunnels and build the, the coffer dams. They're in a big battle with them over who gets to pay for all the overruns associated with the tension cracks. So there's a lot to be sorted out there, and there's no question that if the government decides to continue, it may be in for even more money than we know. flip side of that is, kill it. First of all, you write off almost $4 billion. That's going to go on to Hydro's debt. You're going to have nothing to show for it. And then you start back from scratch. And the same issue that Keith just raised, which is overruns, I don't know that we're going to be able to develop enough geothermal power in B.C., and neither does the Commission. Wind power, yes, we'll have wind farms, but it's uncertain. Every other option they looked at is subject to uncertainties, risk, and we don't know down the road what it's going to cost or whether it's going to be what we need. Rob, uh, the, uh, as we've noted, everybody knows this, but the report was such a tight timeline that they, they didn't have a whole lot of time to do a whole lot of in-depth studying on, on a number of fronts. And one of those, and you'll hear later, my guest Blair King, when he joins us in, the, in segment four, uh, one of the things that he says they've ignored is climate change. Uh, the First Nations issues are, are another one. What wasn't in this report that, that, that maybe is going gonna, is gonna to affect things? Yeah, certainly First Nations is a big one. And uh, a number of the Treaty 8 nations were here at the front of the ledge protesting uh, yesterday. Uh, and uh, But the report also mentions um, that there are some uh, groups, like McLeod Lake, uh, First Nation, that actually, you know, expect to be compensated the other way if this, uh, if this mm-hmm. project gets cancelled. So they're not all on the same page. But I think, you know, there are a number of other factors that the Cabinet has to consider now. John Horgan has to look at that. He has to look at um, all the other issues in, on top of the report. And I think it all comes down, you know, when I talk to New Democrats, they always take me back to the fact that, look, our election promise was affordability. Like, we ran on not nickel and diming you like the B.C. Liberals have done. And I think that is the bottom line. They have to come out of this pointing to how it's going to impact your hydro bill. If your hydro bill is going to go up under Site C versus cancelling Site C and not being able to recover the money the same, but however they do that math, 
on how it's going to impact your bill is the ultimate call, I think, on Site C, because coming out and arguing about writing off a billion here and billion X there, remediating this, people's eyes glaze over. Most people in Lower Mainland couldn't find Site C on a map. <laughs> about your hydro, it's about your hydro bill and the affordability promise in the election and how they cook those numbers to make it look like they have picked the option that reduces the load on you, the ratepayer, in your bill. I think that's the math that they're doing behind the scenes right now. Yeah, right. Good point. And Shane, one of the things that the commission did not do is they did not factor in what it will do to your hydro rates. Yeah. They write off the sunk costs. So $2.1 billion will be spent by the end of the year. That they did not factor in, writing that off, sticking it onto hydro's debt, and having to pay for it over however long. There's nothing in the report that says what that's going to cost us on rates. So that's one of the big things the cabinet is going to have to figure out with their pocket calculators, because the commission didn't answer the question. Uh, final word to you on this, Keith, and, and one of the things I'm curious about is there doesn't seem to be an immediate rush for a decision. Uh, the Premier's not saying I'm going to make a decision by Monday or Wednesday. Uh, it's been sort of the end of the year, before the end of the year is sort of the rough assessment when you ask. So if there's no rough, based on the daily cost of, of that's being mm-hmm. accrued up there, can we assume that maybe they're they're seriously considering building this thing just based on the money they're throwing away each day they delay in actually making a decision, yes or no? Well, that's one way to look at it. I mean, uh, they're spending $2 million a day. They call it the burn rate, which I think is a great uh, a great name for it. <laughs> uh, so it's a 24-7 operation, massive. The work continues to pace. Uh, assuming something on this, I think, is, is somewhat uh, hazardous. Uh, I've never heard the phrase, on the other hand, used more times when you discuss what they're going to do with Site C. Rob's point... Uh, just a moment ago about everything tied to prices. I think it's a, a great one. I think that's really what it's all about. And uh, you can argue Site C is going to increase your bill, but you can also argue without Site C, your bill go up even higher with these uh, less reliable forms of energy. And uh, it's, uh, again, I'm I'm loath to make assumptions of which way they're going to go here. <laughs> I think you can make a solid argument to stop this thing. I think you can make a solid argument to keep it going. And as I say, uh, the NDP itself is split on this issue. There's no homogenous, well, unified view on this thing. It's going to be a fascinating decision. And the fact they are dragging out, you can certainly look, in, look at that and say, well, they're continuing to build the thing and spend money. Maybe that's the sign they're going to continue to build it. And that was my, my view at the very beginning of this thing, that this was a sort of a, a sentence BCUC was a bit of a a cover for Horgan to keep it going. Uh, now I'm not so sure, but uh, we'll see. All right, uh, let's take a quick break here on Inside Politics on Radio and L. We'll pick, our, uh, pick up our conversation with Keith, Rob, and Vaughn on the other side. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Thank you for listening. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Rob Shaw. Uh, guys, the Premier which was once sounding very optimistic about the chances of getting a softwood deal done. Uh, he has since well soured on that. And yesterday we found out that we're really sinking into the trenches for warfare against the United States to get a deal done. Uh, Rob, uh, obviously a significant threat to the local economy. Yeah, I mean, the, the duties um, that were actually imposed by the Commerce Department is slightly less than the preliminary rates, but they're still bad, um, and they could be devastating for the industry. And we're seeing John Horgan uh, come out and say he's going to fight them. Uh, a lot of the rhetoric that we heard from him 
uh, yesterday was very similar to what we used to hear from Christy Clark. Yeah. Um, let's uh, get a trade delegation going to China later this year, and let's diversify our markets, which is has been, to BC's credit, um, one of the goals that they've had in the last few years. So it is interesting to see the new premier handle this file the same way that the old premier did and, and realize that the premier is not the major player on these negotiations and despite the press conferences, uh, you know, has very limited influence on, on how this turns out. Yeah, Vaughn, so what, what tools does John Horgan have in his toolbox other than uh, standing in front of reporters and blustering? And, uh, you know, we don't have a hell of a lot of leverage with the Americans at the moment. It did look over the summer like we might get a softwood deal. Then you look at, you know, Canada got hammered on the Boeing Bombardier case, uh, hammered here. NAFTA, the talks are not looking great. Um, I don't think we're in a a place where we've got much leverage with the Americans at the moment. And so uh, I think diversifying the economy and hoping that, you know, the Americans need more of our lumber because they're rebuilding a big section of of some of their regional economies because of the weather and the hurricane disasters. Um, uh, that's our best bet. But look, uh, for all the tough talk on this side of the border, if we want to continue access to their market, we're going to have to make deals. And at the moment, the terms are not great. Yeah, and uh, it seems that there is a certain amount of Oh, I don't know, how should I phrase this? A certain amount of uh, unpredictability from the White House uh, and who has uh, Mr. Trump's ear as well. So are we in, are we down for a long, bitter fight here, Keith, at, at a huge cost? Well, I'm not sure what the cost is going to be. Uh, saving great, it, it, Susan Yurkovich, the head of the Lumber uh, uh, Forest Council, was at the news conference with Horgan yesterday and asked her, you know, uh, what about job losses? And she, she agrees that because of high lumber prices, as long as that is sustained and certainly for the next short horizon they are expected to remain high that's going to that's going to buffer any any talk of layoffs in BC's forest uh, sector so uh, we're we're saved i think from from any job loss which is the real big economic impact and potential fallout from from a prolonged fight with the US but as history shows any um, guidance here we win these things eventually but we have to go to external uh, adjudicators, tribunals like the World Trade Organization, uh, and using NAFTA Chapter 19, I think, uh, where we eventually win in these uh, these uh, sort of officio ex officio court decisions. And the expectation is Canada will win again in that uh, in that um, lobby in that venue because uh, any anyone who stands back and looks at this realizes that the U.S. decision. Uh, position is based on a tiny but powerful lobby of self-interested uh, U.S. lumber interests. And uh, when you take a step back and look at it, you say, you just, no, what, you're, what, what they're arguing is ridiculous, that Canada does not have some sort of giant subsidy here, uh, and we eventually do win. So the trick is to keep those lumber prices high until we actually achieve victory in those uh, tribunals and that may take some time and if lumber prices slump though that's the fear that's when we see layoffs and it could hammer bc's forest industry up and down uh, the the breadth and width of the province yeah and that's going to put huge pressure on the provincial government not to mention the provincial economy uh we're at 9 30 so let's take a quick break get the news to the bottom of the hour on the other side we have a whole bunch of topics to tackle uh with keith baldry von palmer and rob shaw here on inside politics Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. 
Welcome back. Thank you for listening. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Rob Shaw, and Vaughn Palmer. Uh, Vaughn, when we were preparing for the show, we talked about some of the stuff that uh, happened this week, the MSP task force, uh, the 27-member forum to advise the province on poverty reduction, uh, and then the whole Massey Bridge review, which is a whole story unto itself. But uh, you made the point to me in an email that there's a whole lot of cans being kicked down the road here. Yeah, that noise you hear coming out of the Capitol is a series of cans being kicked down the road. Look, it's a new government, and they're consulting the public, and there is some merit in doing that, but good Lord, they're pushing an awful lot of stuff off to the new year. And some of the stuff they're pushing off, Shane, I think they're starting to take heat for. Yesterday in question period, Andrew Weaver, Sam Sullivan of the Liberals, John Yap of the Liberals, really called the NDP to account for not having acted on things that were in their election platform on housing. They campaigned, the New Democrats campaigned for two years that we were in a housing crisis. And here they are in government, not implementing most of the things they promised to do. Yeah, and you can make the same case for Shane Simpson on uh, on poverty reduction, which is something they've been a torch they've been carrying for years as well. Rob, the Massey review was a whole weird a series of events uh, before we finally got some details and uh, got the name of the guy leading this thing and a budget, etc. Uh, what was going on there? Yeah, that's an interesting one because <clears throat> if you were under the impression that the new Democrats in government uh, in question period were going to be open and uh, transparent and accountable and answer questions. Uh, you haven't been watching the legislature because they give no quarter to anything the liberals ask in question period. And one of the questions was, hey, what's going on with the Massey Bridge review? He canceled the bridge two months ago. Where's the terms of reference and where's the name of the person who's doing it? And Claire Trevena, the minister, basically told the opposition to go pound sand and uh, didn't give him any ounce. But basically said there's nothing going on and we'll, we'll announce it in our own due time. Well, turns out they had basically pretty much hired the guy. He'd already started the work. And the minister found herself in this position of, once again, precariously close to not being fully truthful with the House, which several NDP ministers have, have landed themselves in that same glue because they're so focused on partisanship. They sound exactly like their liberal counterparts uh, in, what, in, in their inability to answer simple questions. And so, yeah, there's a Matthew review, and the gentleman's been hired, and he seems like he's pretty good and, and that, but, like, it's not... it's. It, you know, question period, not answer period, was always the criticism <laughs> of the Liberals, and it's just repeating itself, and the ministers are finding themselves skirting honesty, uh, would be a generous way to put it, on, on some of what they're actually doing with taxpayer money. Keith, what's your read on that, uh, not only in the Massey thing, but how, they, how the NDP are conducting themselves in the House? Skirting honesty, that's a good, uh, that's a good phrase. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Lana Popham of the Minister of Agriculture got tangled up in that fish farm uh, imbroglio last week. It came close to misleading the House. Uh, Trevena, Claire Trevena, transferred. I mean, those two ministries in particular have really had trouble uh, being accountable in the House for their actions and what's really going on. Uh, the NDP is in a honeymoon period right now. I do think they're doing, overall, they're, they're doing fairly well for a new government. But as Vaughn says, a lot of cans are kicked down the road, and eventually this is all going to catch up to them. And uh, one of the problems I think they've got is they set expectations so high because they labeled the B.C. Liberals as a corrupt government that was incompetent on so many levels that if only the NDP came in, so many problems would be solved so quickly. 
that was the impression and the argument they made in the election, in the run-up to the election, in the election campaign itself. In fact, that was the argument they made for the last five years. And, of course, we know there is no instant solutions to a lot of these problems, notably housing in Metro Vancouver. And because the NDP inevitably is not going to be able to deliver on this promise of just waving a magic wand and your your life's going to be better and everything's going to be more affordable, uh, they run the risk of a huge public backlash against them for not living up to these expectations. And they're showing every sign right now of eventually not living up to them. Right now, everything's, I think uh, things are fairly smooth. Uh, I call this the exhibition season until we get to next spring sitting of, with, the, with the NDP's budget. That's when I think it begins in earnest in real time in reality for a lot of people. So they've got a, a period of grace right now, but the signs are there that this is going to catch up to them come next spring, and it's not going to be a happy result for them. Vaughn, an aspect of the Massey Bridge, and I guess any other capital project uh, that lies ahead of us, uh, is how it's procured and, and, the, and the contracts around it. The Premier raising this thing about uh, best bids and capital projects and the specter of the pro-union labour agreements, uh, i.e. the Island Highway in the past, uh, which begs the question, what the hell is a best bid? Well, he's indicated that a best bid would have to include a higher level of uh, hiring, guarantees of hiring locally, which I think people might support that idea. Uh, guarantees of local suppliers, okay. Apprenticeships, uh, so you can train the next generation of workers. But he also, you're right, Shane, referenced the Island Highway Agreement. Well, that also included a union hire and fixed wages, which can drive up the price of all these contracts, which means... You know, there's a limited amount you can borrow and still preserve the credit rating. So it means that you can approve fewer projects. I mean, you will still do some projects, but you won't do as many as you would do if you just go to a low bid system. So that's the real risk he's running there. I mean, the idea sounds popular, and I think it'll go over well with people. But if you start to see in a year or two that a bunch of projects that were promised aren't being built, if some of those projects start to go over budget or they're behind schedule because of other issues, then it's going to come back to the NDP that they their best bid system made these projects more expensive. Uh, Rob, a story you did this week uh, caught my eye, that Secretive International Financial Activity Program, which the New York Times uh, did quite a number on, uh, that now is dead in the water. Uh, What happened there? Yeah, it was a last-minute attempt by the Liberals to save this thing, which basically was a program that would allow um, companies that were had certain international components to them to write off um, or get a rebate on their corporate uh, income tax, depending on the circumstances. It was a contentious program because we don't know who gets the rebates. Uh, the government uh, won't provide that list, and uh, it's, uh, it's a bit of a mess. So the Liberals tried at the last minute to save this by amending the NDP's budget bill and uh, they were waiting on the Greens to see what they would do. And Andrew Weaver kind of said, I thought about, I thought about um, saving this, and he was convinced otherwise. The argument is that most of the companies are already based in B.C. They're doing weird financial things like uh, factoring uh, and uh, trading debt to subsidiaries of themselves and their corporate parents, and it's not really generating any jobs. And um, there's a new uh, report that the government unredacted showing that the job growth is minimal. And so <clears throat> basically this program dies. It was uh, <clears throat> the kind of thing that the NDP used to paint the Liberals on as a corporate giveaway of your tax dollars to shady international companies, and uh, the Liberals couldn't save it. And 
down it goes. So uh, the NDP and Greens are pretty happy about that. Yeah, I bet they are. Uh, interesting weekend ahead. We have the NDP convention, which I assume uh, you gentlemen will be covering as well as uh, the second BC Liberal leadership debate. I'm I'm assuming on the NDP side of things, they're hoping one drowns out the other. Uh, Keith, uh, what are you keeping your eye on uh, over the weekend? Well, I think all three of us are going to the NDP convention. It's uh, if if for nothing else, it's the first convention in 16 years in which we're going to where the NDP's been in power. And NDP conventions, when the, when the party's actually in power, actually can be fairly interesting, if not entertaining affairs, because <laughs> policy discussions suddenly take on new light, because uh, what is decided on the floor of these conventions can very well uh, realistically impact government policy. So the NDP is very good at, at sort of their, their behind-the-scenes people of stage managing the floor fights and, the, and what resolutions get on the floor for debate and which ones don't. Uh, we're told that there's nothing on Site C, for example, that's going to get on the floor because they don't want that little thing to be um, blown open. But it'll be interesting to see what's discussed uh, and what's passed as policy uh, at a convention that has is far more relevant now that the party's in power than it hasn't been. As I say, it's been 16 years, more than 16 years, since we've gone to one where, where they've been in power. And I expect the atmosphere to be rather festive uh, and celebratory that uh, they're finally in government after after so long of going to conventions in the past, which were kind of downer events because they were yeah. just glum opposition things with no hope of being in power anytime soon. Now it's quite the opposite. Vaughn, what uh, what do you keep an eye out for this weekend at the convention? Attention, BC Liberals. The NDP is the big story these days. Yeah. They're the government, and the stuff they're doing is interesting. I agree with Keith. This is very early uh, for, for the time of government. I think the party will be so excited and celebratory over the big win that uh, informing government that they're not going to give the government a hard time. That'll that'll start next year uh, when the party's in power. The Constitution requires it to have a convention every year, so I think we'll see some of the impatience this time next year, but I think it'll just be a love-in this weekend. Yeah, you agree, Rob? Yeah, I'm, I'm always interested in the financials of the parties because you get a, a brief glimpse into their window, and does the NDP have any debt left? How is it done with its fundraising since it came into government? It's done the same fundraising that it used to criticize the Liberals for, selling access to its ministers. and, and So there's little insights into the party that you can get uh, from some of the reports in there, which is always kind of a fascinating glimpse into the underpinnings of why they do some of the things they do. There's a $400 a ticket uh, fundraiser for John Horgan tomorrow night, as uh-huh. a matter of fact, so, uh, which comes under the $1,200 um, maximum donation you can make. But uh, the fundraising continues apace, and I don't know if we really call $400 a plate uh, big money or not, but I suspect a lot of people can't afford four hundred dollars to just go. It's not even a dinner; it's a reception mm. uh, with John Horger, John Horgan tomorrow night. All right, interesting. Uh, we got to wrap it up, uh, gentlemen. Always appreciate the time and appreciate the insight. Thank you. Goodbye. Von Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Rob Shaw. Uh, we'll take a quick break here at Inside Politics. On the other side, we'll talk Site C with Blair King. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local first for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Pleasure to be joined on the phone by Blair King. Anyone who follows his blog or follows him on Twitter knows that he is uh, very much into a lot of different fronts, but including the Site C Dam and the BC Utility Commission process. Uh, Blair, before we dive into, I know you've got some big issues with this thing. Uh, Before we dive into some of those specific issues, I'm curious what you thought of the report overall. Overall, I think the report is really quite excellent. Uh, I am not an economist, but I see 
that they've done an, uh, a great job of trying to understand an incredibly complex subject in a very short period of time. The, the, on that end, there's simply, a, they, simply something that we can be proud of, given the amount of time they've had. They have produced something that is worthy of uh, a lot of consideration. All right. Now, as I mentioned, I know that you have some big issues with it. Let's uh, let's dive into those. First and foremost, uh, BC Utilities Commission chose to go with the low load forecast as opposed to the mid to the high. Uh, you take exception to that. How come? Well, essentially, what in like any situation where you have a conclusion based on assumptions, if you make the assumption that low load is the the future, then all the costs that will be associated with replacing the low load uh, will be lower. And the low load assumption is based on this huge assumption that there will be no electrification uh, to address climate change in the, in the window of consideration of the report. Yeah, and let's break that down because, uh, and again, maybe it's because it was so abbreviated. We know that was an extremely tight timeline. But uh, the second thing that you that you were upset about is the fact that it essentially ignores climate change entirely. Yes, and realistically, we we have a slew of climate uh, legislation on the books that says that we, in the next uh, twenty years, will be making significant efforts to reduce our carbon uh, footprint, and a lot of that has to be done through uh, electrification. There's just no other way to do it. This is national policy. This is provincial policy. And in, this, in the case of this report, they've assumed that none of that will occur, that no, they've excluded the concept of electrification in their calculations for future law forecasts, which is essentially saying that the B.C. government, the federal government, will not act on climate change in any significant fashion in the next 20 years. Now, as, uh, as I believe uh, you heard as well down on CKNW, the chair of the BCUC basically saying uh, that, listen, he was building this around the government policy of the day, and he can't presuppose what they might do in the future. And that's, uh, I, I almost fell off my seat when I heard him say that, because, of course, the government has established in law uh, that they will be reducing their uh, carbon emissions. And the only way to reduce your carbon emissions is to burn less carbon. Uh, and thus, the, the only, and if you're burning less carbon in a carbon-intensive society, that means you have to go to some other energy source, and that other energy source is electricity. Uh, and so to say that there's no policy is to ignore an entire raft of legislation and acts and other features that are on the books. You, it's pretending that, that the entire... Uh, legislative uh, hit record of the last five, ten years doesn't exist. Okay, with that in mind, let's circle back to the to the high, low, and, and medium load forecast. So uh, the low forecast, essentially, you're throwing a quarter in the air and seeing if it lands heads or tails in the Site C dam. But if you include climate change, if you include electrification uh, and some of the future forecasts, and you start to do this report built around the mid to the high, then the dynamics around whether Site C is viable or not change dramatically. Uh, that, that's precisely what the panel says in their conclusion. They say... If we, uh, if we go to a medium or high load forecast, 
Site C is the cost-effective uh, choice for the uh, ratepayers of BC. So yes, if we dis- if that assumption right at the front end that we would use low load forecasting defines the conclusion, which is that it's a toss-up. If they had gone to medium or high, lo- the mid or high load, then the it wouldn't be a toss-up. It would be a slam dunk that the ratepayers get a better deal out of completing Site C and using that electricity to in the future. I'm curious what you think of the of the supposition in the report that, uh, based on the framework it's built around, that if they decide to uh, shelve Site C, that alternative energy sources, wind, solar, whatever, uh, could actually be done and produce the same result at a, at a cheaper cost. Albeit, they do mention that there's risks involved there. What, how did that hit you? That hit me. I I have been a, a constant critic of that uh, statement because that statement depends on a number of uh, very specific assumptions. It assumes that we will continue to see substantial decreases in the cost of solar and wind energy, which we're, we're, is not necessarily the case. When they brought in the, their outside experts to discuss the cost of these technologies, those outside experts used American numbers based on American conditions and ignored the geography of British Columbia where Wind is simply not as readily available as it is on the, the comparison used was Washington and Oregon uh, states. And Washington and Oregon use coastal wind, which is simply not available in the vast majority of British Columbia because Vancouver Island is in the way. <laughs> the, other wind, the, only, the location of the wind resource in British Columbia is in the northwest coast, in the Haida Gwaii area, and in the Peace region in the ridgelines, that the cost to establish wind in those areas, it would be substantially more expensive than it would putting in a coastal, uh, on a coastal, uh, near the coastal highway in Oregon or on the coast in California. And the numbers we were being cited were numbers for the coast of California and the coast of Oregon, where all the infrastructure exists. Putting a wind turbine on the top of a ridgeline in the Peace District, uh, 50 to 100 miles away from the nearest rail line, is a different prospect than putting a wind turbine next to a major railway uh, and highway infrastructure set up in Oregon. One of the reasons I like talking to you, Blair, is, and I'm sure you're aware that in my line of work, I talk to a lot of people who have a partisan dog in the fight, and I find it refreshing to talk to somebody who is outside of that bubble and looking at things through a bit of a fresh eyesight. But I'm curious, did the BCUC, uh, when they began to consult with people, uh, did they get that perspective? Did they get a scientific perspective from a lot of people, or did they get a bunch of partisans? Well, the, if you take a look at the people who spoke at the... Uh, who spoke and presented, it was almost entirely partisans because ultimately it comes down to who was available and who had the time. It was a very fast process and they weren't asked, they didn't go out and ask a a bunch of people. They did get Deloitte to do work and Deloitte is an independent uh, organization. But virtually everyone who appeared at the panel had a dog in the fight. Uh, They were consultants who were being paid to be there. They were activists who had the time and they were retired people who had the time to, to do this sort of stuff during the day. The professional scientists of British Columbia basically stood out. If you take a look at the, the list of people who presented, absent Dr. Jacquard, uh, there was 
essentially no one from UBC, SFU, U- University of Northern BC that presented. We have an entire area of expertise in, in British Columbia that was excluded because of the speed of the activity and the fact that, frankly, no one was paying them to do it. Uh, it if you don't have a dog in the fight, if you're like myself and you're doing this as, as a hobby, then it then you have to fit it in your schedule. And when you have a busy schedule and a tight timeline, it's very, very few people have the willingness to make that, to put in that effort. Yeah. Uh, just out of curiosity, I know we've talked a lot about sort of the, the science behind it, the, the, the load, the electrification, climate change, all that jazz. We haven't talked about the dollars. And, and one of the things that caught my eye was uh, the report basically crapped all over BC Hydro's estimate saying this thing is basically probably not going to be on time and has the potential to run seriously over budget. Does does the, the dollars spent, if it does go over budget, does that kind of, um, does that throw into your calculations at all or no? Well, it does. It concerns me deeply because I'm a ratepayer and I have kids who are going to be ratepayers for the foreseeable future. Uh, the, the question, though, lies that if they've done the math right and calculated it correctly, which they, they claim they have, then even in the, uh, the case of a, of a significant over, overflow, or uh, they still don't make the, the mid-load and high-load forecasts come out as cheaper. I recognize there's a, there's a risk here, but certainly there's a far greater risk if we use the wrong numbers in, as inputs in the calculations. All right. Uh, I, guess, I guess my last question to you, Blair, is uh, I, I know you don't have the ear of the Premier, and neither do I, but I'm curious, uh, given your perspective and your insight into this, uh, if you could suggest to John Horgan uh, what he should do on this subject, what would that be? Well, if, if I were him, I would ask him to... He has, the, he has time to do consultations. I would ask him to actively consult the scientific community of British Columbia, the experts in British Columbia who've done this for years, and see how they view the numbers. Because ultimately, it comes down to, if the, it comes down to getting the expertise involved. Because at this point, I would, I would tend to believe that the, the project is cost-effective. I am not an expert on the financial end, and, but BC has a lot of those experts. And getting, getting the expertise of the BC scientific community involved is something that they really need to do. Blair, we're out of time, but uh, I thank you for your insight and your perspective. Good to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. That was biologist and chemist Blair King, who also happens to take a very big interest in uh, a lot of different issues, including the Site C Dam. Thanks to my guests today, Blair King, Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Rob Shaw. We'll see you right here at Inside Politics on Radio NL again next Friday. Local. First. CHNL. AM 610 in Kamloops. RadioNL.com. The Valley's first choice for local news.